Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, welcome back to the OIS Podcast. Uh, back in April, on April 16th in San Diego, uh, at OIS, that we had uh, over two dozen company presentations. And one of the ones that I think drew the most curiosity was by uh, Avidro, uh, Dave Muller, President and CEO is is no stranger to the podium at OIS. In fact, at uh, OIS at AO in the fall, Dave had uh, presented and uh, had uh, hoped that uh, come this OIS, he would have news of FDA approval of the company's uh, cross-linking technology. Unfortunately, the FDA had a few more questions uh, for Avidro. Uh, particularly about its uh, the device element of its treatment, and uh, asked those questions in a letter in February, and it's causing uh, a bit of a delay in getting what we hope will be that final approval. So Dave was very candid about that at OIS, and uh, he's equally candid about it today in uh, in this OIS podcast. Dave sits down and talks about uh, what the FDA's questions centered around. But we also talked a bit about what that decision, uh, how that's impacted uh, Vidro's uh, trials or clinical trial plans uh, for its other technologies, including its uh, its pixel treatment. So we hope you enjoy this visit with Dave Muller of Avidro. Hi, Dave. Welcome back to the OIS podcast. Hi, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Great. Thanks for having. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, we, uh, I think, your presentation at OIS a couple of weeks ago was uh, probably one to watch for a lot of people. We wanted to get some more information uh, about uh, your interactions with the FDA. Uh, this was uh, this has been a storyline that I think people have followed for for some time. Uh, I know you referenced it back when you uh, presented at OIS in, uh, uh, in October at AAO. Uh, and you were hoping for uh, some definitive news to report at uh, uh, in San Diego in April, but but you don't have that just yet. Can you give us an update on uh, where you are with the FDA? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, by way of a little background first, would, uh, before the the CRL letter that we want to discuss is that on in February 24th of this year, we actually went to an ad um, panel meeting uh, to for the panel to evaluate the safety and efficacy of. Uh, cross-linking for uh, keratoconus and post-linking ectasia. And at the end of the panel meeting, uh, we, we got a vote of approval for a vote of approval for both indications. Uh, so we felt very positive about that. Uh, subsequent to that, about uh, a month later, we received a CRL, a complete response letter, uh, addressing, uh, asking questions with respect to deficiencies uh, on the device, that is the uh, the equivalency of the device that we submitted for approval relative to the device that was actually used in the clinical trials. There, there were no questions in the CRL regarding the clinical trials at all. That's to say that we, uh, we both uh, safety and efficacy, trial design, and, and such, uh, no questions related to that. Uh, so as to the device, uh, as you know, this is a illumination device where the important issue really is that the beam on the eye, that is the UV light, has a certain size and a certain energy and affluence during the course of the procedure. Um, we felt pretty strongly that the device that we submitted uh, for approval, our KXL device, uh, does 
perform equivalently to the UVX device that uh, the eight, that we that the trials were conducted with. Um, so we believe we have a fairly straightforward path to go back to the agency uh, and be able to demonstrate that uh, we can answer the deficiency questions with regard to the uh, to the to the device. It's uh, it's in a sense very basic. We were surprised to get it. Uh, because we had, uh, as far back as 2011, uh, we had uh, signed off from the agency to, that the devices were equivalent. And so it did catch us a little bit off guard. But again, because it's so fu- it's so basic, it's such a basic light source that we believe we can satisfactorily answer all questions. What did happen between those two points? You, you, you had conversations about the device earlier. And like you said, uh, then these issues came up later on. Were there any changes made to the device that... The FDA wasn't no, aware we're of or just... really, No, we actually we're not really sure exactly exactly what happened. I think the uh, in fact not only were we in two thousand eleven we were uh essentially signed off at our pre NDA meeting as having the device devices being equivalent. And then as you're probably aware, a year ago we got a complete response letter that had a couple small questions in it regarding the device, just uh, some small technical really questions. And subsequent to that CRL, we received a uh, clean bill of health, that is a, a letter from the agency saying we had satisfied uh, all deficiencies that were in the letter. So uh, we were, again, as you said, very surprised that, to find out there are additional deficiencies. But I think my guess is that when I look at those, I think it just appears to be some confusion. And that's why I believe that we will be able to answer any of those questions. You're you're very relaxed about this. I know you're an East Coast guy like me, so we're 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 both very chill. But uh, did uh, is is the fact? I mean, is my understanding you have sort of an exclusivity on this market once you get approval. The, this is a seven year window where you have uh, exclusive uh, control of this domain. Is that sort of softened the blow well, a bit? The uh, the the drug has been uh, uh, the the. Sorry, the procedure has basically been given orphan designation. The drug has been given orphan designation for for these two indications. Um, I mean, I, I think I may sound calm about it now. Uh, I've had you know a month or so for it to mellow, but I mean, it, it was you know it was kind of a shock shock to us with the company, and the and the setback is uh, you know no doubt uh, problematic. But you know I think you know just uh, you know march forward because. Uh, we know that uh, we know that this is a procedure that is uh, save it could has the potential to save thousands of people from corneal transplants every year in the U.S. And the trials showed that it was safe and efficacious. And so I think this, what I believe should be a minor detail with respect to the device, could be overcome. Will this uh, impede at all development of the other products in your your pipeline? And let and let's start talking about them. Uh, is this taking resources away from? Uh from Pixel uh, in, in your other areas of interest? Well, I think it's, you know, obviously within the company, it's caused a minor diversion as we, you know, put together the answers for the uh, for the CRL. But in general, no. I think probably the only thing that slowed us down on is uh, exactly when we're going to start clinical trials in the U.S. for Pixel. We initially planned on starting them this summer, and now those are probably postponed until probably first quarter or so of next year. But as far as advancing the pixel work, uh, we're going um, great guns outside the U.S. In fact, we are we actually at the, at the point now where we're ready to start commercializing 
uh, pixel for certain indications uh, outside the U.S. And uh, because of the results we've been seeing, we're extremely happy with. And give us a refresher on what Pixel is and what the opportunity is for for Avidra. Sure. Well, Pixel is uh, is an acronym for uh, photorefractive interstromal crosslinking. But the key really is that it's a it's a you can think of it as a topography guided crosslinking system is as accurate and as as accurate as an excimer laser is with placing the beam. And what's really going on uh, in with this pixel process is we're learning how to manipulate the corneal biomechanics in a way such that even with a normal cornea, by proper placement of of this, of this new biomechanical property, we can actually cause the eye to reshape. So just in the way that when you make an astigmatic keratotomy on a patient, when the eye is weakened by a couple cuts, the cornea shifts in shape in, in response to those weakenings. So in the same way with using guided cross-linking, we can shift the shape of the cornea by specifically putting stiffening in certain areas. And I guess to put a fine point on that, it'll be a cross point, I guess, if you look at a keratoconus patient, typically keratoconus patient is uh, their their disease is in the inferior portion of the cornea. But yet historically, what people have done is we've crosslinked the whole cornea, so we're stiffening the disease and we're stiffening the undiseased portion of the cornea, and so you get you get a nice effect. There's no doubt about it. But we found that if instead of doing that, if you only stiffen the diseased portion. The, you get a much bigger effect, much bigger flattening effect, and also a much more regularization of the cornea. So for the, for the disease patients, we actually have the, the ability to bring them back, uh, not just to stabilize the cornea, but improve their refractive state. But, but that's really just the beginning of it for us, because so, we we saw this quite a while ago. And so it was probably, probably about two, at least two years ago, maybe a little bit more, we started thinking about actually using this as a refractive procedure tool. So not a surgical tool, but refractive procedure. And as the idea was if we, say for instance, the one to treat myopia, if we just provide a little bit of stiffening to the central part of the cornea, uh, the cornea, will, we would see a net flattening. And this was, you know, this was our idea from a biomechanical perspective and really confirmed by the work from uh, BJ Dupes at Cleveland Clinic on the modeling that says this is something that should happen. So, about two years ago, we started looking at unsighted eyes that we could uh, that we could monitor their refractive change, although not their visual change. And now, a year and a half or so later, you know, these, we're seeing these patients, and we see that we can induce a flattening, and that flattening is stable for you know at least 18 months. So the next stage was about then about a year ago we first started treating uh, patients who. Were, had normal sight, but had a small refractive errors. And I think now we've treated a whole series of those patients that we see with with pretty high precision that, uh, at least in the lower diopter range now where we've targeted, uh, we can induce very nice refractive changes. So, and to, just to quantify that, so the, right, the ones we've been doing now really only up to about a diopter and a half. But we believe, according to the modeling, we can get up to four diopters. But even a diopter and a half, that's a lot of patients. And those patients are really broken into two groups. They're the contact lens wearers that choose not to have surgery. And I think probably an easier, more accessible market are post-cataract patients who are being treated by uh, physicians, surgeons who generally don't have a refractive surgery practice. So 
as you know, 40 to 45 percent of the patients that have uh, cataract surgery have some residual refractive error. You know, not necessarily a lot, but there's always some there. And the pixel procedure, particularly if it's done with Epion, uh, it's a it's a non-contact eye drops in the eye light, resulting in a reshaping of the cornea in that sort of diopter diopter and a half range. And it's it's a very nice thing. It's a win-win for for all players. The the, the patient can get a better outcome. The surgeon now has a, or the physician now has a new tool. Um, and remember, this will be private pay, so it's something, it's outside the system. It's not a, there's no balanced billing issue. And the company, obviously, I think will do very well in that. There are millions of patients that could uh, benefit from this type of procedure. Uh, Dave, so, I mean, it sounds like an enormous opportunity for Pixel. Uh, do you have a sense of what kind of uh, clinical trials, uh, what size and scope will be necessary to, to garner approval in, in the U.S.? Uh, well, we believe we do. Uh, let's, let's first look outside the U.S. And I think the outside the U.S. we are uh, CE marked for actually doing this procedure. And I think that over t- what we need to learn over time is a couple things: is to um, fine tune the nomogram a bit, and then also to uh, learn how to expand the dynamic range of the procedure. And I think we expect, uh, just like in the early days with the X-ray laser, we expect to learn a lot working in cooperation. Uh, with uh, the, with the ophthalmologist using the device, as far as the U.S. goes, I think the assumption that we're making is this should be, um, uh, I guess, what I would call the standard refractive protocol, uh, which typically have been given to the external lasers. Because again, this is a refractive procedure, so I'd expect that we we would do probably have to be required to do 300 patients in a phase three study and follow those patients for at least one year, uh, maybe a possibly be able to submit it one year and, uh, you know, file the final data with two-year follow-up. Uh, one of the things that's sort of interesting about this compared to, you know, I would say, the early extra days is that there's now called 15 years or, you know, 12 years of safety and efficacy data, and I, let me underline safety, of corneal cross-leaking. So we, we know what to expect, and generally we, expect, we don't expect anything bad. And so I think it's uh, it's it will be somewhat easier to move this through the process, not only through the FDA process, but I think also um, the what's called the emotional process of getting uh, uh, physicians comfortable with using this new modality. You know, back in the extra days, we were, doing, we were you know uncharted territory and using a laser to cut tissue and remove it. Uh, now with and that was with no real long-term follow-up. Now with so many. Th- hundreds of thousands of patients that have had cross-linking. We really do know what to expect. We know that the safety profile is incredibly high. And that the, uh, you know, in the, even these initial phases, I think the worst thing you expect to happen to a patient is you don't make them anatropic, which is, uh, you know, is, you know, a pretty good, pretty good way to be able to uh, approach a trial. Mm. Well, and, and does your, your experience uh, with the FDA uh, over the last couple of years, is that... Uh helping you prepare for uh, for what you need to know going forward? You, I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, just one has to be, you know, knowledgeable of the FDA process. It's always going to be a process. And uh, I think, you know, with respect to, you know, what we've learned, I think that, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time in the agency back and forth on the cross-linking aspect itself. And I think that, I think now we're at the point where, 
I think the agency must be somewhat comfortable with it because they said there was no issue with safety or efficacy with the uh, process. I think going into into the refractive area, you know, that's a uh, it's an elective procedure and you know carries with it you know, a higher burden. Um, so I, I think that you know the, having gone through this process is going to help us in the next pr- next part of the process. But I don't uh, I don't make light of uh, you know the difficulty of doing a, a refractive procedure uh, protocol with the agency. But there you know, will be, and you know, no one would make light of that. Um, there would be, I suppose, some. Uh, we talked a bit at OIS about the private pay market. Uh, the fact that this would be private pay, I guess, uh, at least it eliminates one roadblock trying to get reimbursement and, and coding for for this kind of procedure. Sure, absolutely, and I think it, you know, it really makes it in a sense makes it better for everybody. You know, this. Uh, it's back to the sort of free market system with it, and I think it doesn't put a burden on healthcare. Puts the burden to the patient, and it allows the doctor to be, well, you know, more free with respect to what they're doing. I think you know, not not bound up by, you know, the, the reimbursement issues. And just finally, uh, how did uh, how was OIS and, and Askers for you? I'm sure going into the year, you you had uh, different plans for Askers, and, and you were planning to unveil something. But I hope it was sure. still a productive meeting for you. And what what did you find interesting out there? Well, the I guess I was probably video focused, so I didn't have much <laughs> time be. looking around. But I think you know, I think it, we did have we did have a different plan. But as you may know, we had a an event. We normally at the larger meetings we have private events where uh, we invite physicians and 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 others and part of the best opportunity to come in and hear what we're doing. And so we had uh, on Saturday night we had an event at the museum in, in San Diego. And I believe we had over 575 people uh, come out to the museum to hear uh, a number of speakers talk about the advances in cross-linking. So, you know, although we we're still unable to sell anything in the U.S., I think the it was uh, very uh, rewarding to see the size of the turnout. I think we had the largest uh, private event turnout uh, of any of any company uh, at Asterisk, which is a reasonably impressive considering we still don't have approval. So I think it's a it's a marker of how interested ophthalmologists are to learn more about not only you know the basis of crosslinking, but where crosslinking can be in the future. That's great. That's got to be encouraging and, and helpful. Dave, thanks for taking the time today to 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 get us updated on where Vidro is. All right, my pleasure, Tom. Thanks. Thank you, Dave Muller, for joining us uh, on the OIS podcast and for being so frank and candid about Avidro's interactions uh, with the FDA. Uh, so please uh, tune in next week for another uh, inspired tale of innovation uh, from OIS. And of course, uh, if you're a company and you want to present at OIS, uh, the next one is on November 12th. We hope to uh, see you in Las Vegas at the OIS at AAO. OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.